Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, what is the nothing phone and will it shake up the smartphone market? BMW is offering heated seats as a subscription, but is it worth your money? Plus, it is getting quite warm. It's actually heating up. Henry McKean experiences some menopausal symptoms in the name of research and we'll chat to the organisers of the upcoming Dublin Maker Festival. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. And we're going to kick off this week with the Nothing Phone. You might have heard about it just yet, but it does look set to shake the world of smartphones up ever so slightly. Uh, Carl Pay is the man behind the brand. He was the co-founder of the OnePlus devices, but now he's back with something new. Earlier this year in March, he gave a bit of a teaser as to what we could expect from the Nothing phone. We're incredibly excited to announce that, surprise, surprise, we will be launching a smartphone, the Nothing Phone 1. It's going to be the beating heart of our product ecosystem. Remember that first iPhone launch? Overnight, we moved from physical buttons to capacitive multi-touch screens. That was a huge leap in innovation. And then came the App Store, which completely redefined our relationship to smartphones. But where's innovation now? Every year, we get a bigger screen and the camera positions shift. But that's about it. We get iterations, not innovations. The vision has gone. Smartphones used to excite us. Now, they're mundane. But I'm excited. I'm excited But what I've learned so far in the smartphone industry. Pioneering online sales, cutting out the middleman, and delivering better value to users. Creating communities and building better products with our customers. And I've already shown once how a small team can challenge Apple. I took a little break, and I'm excited to be back again. We hope that the Nothing Phone 1 is the wake-up call that the industry needs. We're not saying we're going to fix the industry with just one product, but we want the phone one to mark the start of change. Well, Simon Hunt is a tech reporter with the Evening Standard and he joins me now. Simon, before we talk about the device, let's talk a little bit about Carl Pei and the impact he's already had on the smartphone world. He has, yeah. And, and, and of course, um, I mean, one, of, one of the major successes of OnePlus was that it was able to um, get quite a large market share in India. I think they managed something like one third of the of the market that they were able to capture, and so I think with with his new um, phone launch in the Nothing Phone, I think he's hoping to repeat some of those successes. Yeah, it's funny when I listen to Chris Pay there talking about uh, the good old days of the first iPhone and the audible gasp and the whoops and the hollers and the claps of people in the crowd when Steve Jobs unveiled the first iPhone. That was a pivotal moment in terms of technological development and the changing consumer habits and all the rest, and we won't go down that rabbit hole. But for a while, Apple did dominate that space and there was a sense of excitement every time an Apple event would come around. And that has kind of disappeared in the world of smartphones to a certain degree. Um, you know, pretty much every week here on News Talk when I'm recommending a phone or I'm reviewing a phone, 
I often say it's quite it's kind of hard to get excited or find new ways to talk about a phone that has a six inch screen and, you know, a nice bit of glass on the back and a, a decent camera. It is getting increasingly difficult to, to, to find points of difference between the different phones. So when it comes to the nothing phone, you know, does it really stand out from what's already on the market? Yeah, I, I think you're you're completely right in that. I think, um, you know, a lot of product launches now um, seem a, a little bit on the dull side. You know, you, you hear about a new smartphone and, you know, maybe it's got a slightly faster processor than the last one, or maybe they've added yet another camera to the back of it or something. But it doesn't feel like it doesn't have the kind of hype that it used to. And I think with the Nothing phone, they definitely wanted to try and bring back some of that creativity and excitement. And I think they, I mean, the, the CEO told me that he is, looking to um, target what he calls uh, creatives uh, in the UK at least. So, you know, I guess maybe your architects or fashion designers or the sorts of people who want something that's a bit different and a bit more exciting than than the sort of traditional um, look of a phone. You were at the uh, event in London that took place earlier in the week. Um, I know that a number of journalists were there. They got hands-on time with the phone. They've got to test the phone, play around with it. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about it. What is the phone? Does it look massively different? Is there anything to be super excited about? Yeah, I mean, I I did get a brief chance to have a look at the phone and try it out at their launch event in King's Cross um, earlier this week. Um, it, I suppose to an extent it looks something like an iPhone, except the, the major difference being that it's got this sort of translucent back with lots of intriguing lights on the back of it. Um, so the lights serve a few different purposes. I think they can be used as a, as a backlight for uh, filming video in low light. Uh, they, they also use as a, a battery indicator to indicate how, how full it is when it's being charged. Um, and they can do a few other things too, like they can be programmed to light up in different ways, depending on which of your contacts is calling you. Um, so, I mean, it's not necessarily massively practical, but it is quite fun and, and, and it feels kind of exciting to to try it out. And I think that's that's part of the appeal, really. Mm. This device runs Android um, and, you know, you, you mentioned there the lights on the back. It, it is a bit more unique looking than the average smartphone. Um, in terms of the device itself, I've read some commentators saying that although it's an Android device, it's probably closer to an Apple device in terms of the operational aspects of it. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I definitely, you know, if you looked at it from a distance, you'd think it might be an iPhone. Um, so, it, you know, in a sense, the, the, the two biggest um, companies that dominate the smartphone market in the world are Apple and um, Samsung. Uh, this one kind of feels like it, or, or looks like an, an Apple, but it runs on Android. So in a sense, it's kind of the best of both worlds, I guess. The big point of difference that I can see with this phone uh, from the other flagships that are on the market, and by that I mean the iPhone 13, the Samsung Galaxy S22, uh, we've got Oppo phones, we've got a whole host of other devices and their flagships tend to be very close to the €1,000 mark. I have the euro price for the nothing phone in front of me and it's 469 euro. So that is a fraction of the iPhone 13 and the S22. Um, Do you think there's space in the market for a device like this? You know, will it soak up some of those customers who love the idea of having a flagship but don't want to spend a thousand euro or do you think that there's always going to be a portion of people who will spend a grand on a phone because it's new and it's exciting well yeah i mean i i definitely think that um consumers are a lot more sensitive to price now than they might have been 
a year ago, given the kind of rates of inflation we're, we're seeing. Uh, I think there was a, a survey out by uh, EY, the accountancy firm, earlier this week, which suggests that people are cutting back on their uh, spending on consumer ele electronics quite significantly. And in that context, a, a cheaper phone definitely seems more attractive now than it did um, a few months ago. But as you say, the market is dominated by the likes of two big players, um, uh, Apple and Samsung, who between them have something like a three quarters market share. And it's going to be very difficult to penetrate that market in, in that context. Uh, even Google with their new uh, Pixel phone, which by the way, I have one of, and I think it's quite good, are struggling to get that kind of market share themselves. And if, if a mighty company like Google can't do it, then it's going to be an uphill challenge for a company like nothing. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Pixel 6. That's one of my favourite phones of the year. Anyone who's been listening to the Pack Any show over the last number of years will know that the Pixel 4a was one of the best phones of all time, in my opinion. Um, so the Pixel range is excellent. It ticks so many boxes in terms of camera, in terms of battery, in terms of design. However, when I recommend it to people, sometimes they arch their eyebrow because they didn't know that Google does smartphones. And this is Google and they have endless budgets, they have huge money, they have great technology and it's a bit bonkers that the average consumer still doesn't know that Google does phones. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's partly because there is a lot of stickiness when it comes to um, uh, different smartphones now. You know, most people, if they bought an iPhone, the next one they're going to be looking at buying is also going to be an iPhone and ditto with, with Android users. Um, so it's quite difficult to get people to make that switch. But, you know, we've seen it happen in years gone by. You know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone had a Nokia and then lots of people switched to BlackBerry and then people switched from BlackBerry to, to iPhone. So, I mean, I don't think nothing is going to be that, that next big shift, but definitely it's not impossible that a new phone could come along which massively changes the market. There's been a lot of talk as to what Apple will do next in terms of its innovation, but also in terms of trying to reclaim the undisputed king or queen of the smartphone market title. Um, can you envisage them bringing out a cheaper phone? Because look, they have the iPhone SE, which is a more affordable iPhone, but it's still pretty expensive. Uh, could you ever see them bringing almost a bargain basement iPhone out to try and soak up some of that market? You'd love the idea of having a phone with an Apple logo on the back and iOS, but just cannot bring themselves to spend hundreds and hundreds of euro on a device. I, yeah, I, I think it's not inconceivable that they would they would bring out another um, cheaper version, not least because of the cost of living and inflation at the moment, meaning people are a lot more price sensitive. But often the cheaper versions just feel like an older version of what were the top versions you know two three years ago um so i, d I don't know if it's going to convince people to to switch you know if you're going to switch to something cheaper you'd rather have the top level version of a different um, company rather than the kind of second rate version of, of a product you're already familiar with one thing we've seen quite a bit here in ireland and we've spoken about it a lot on tech talk is um the second-hand market and the refurbished market, there are a number of players uh, in this country and entering this country reselling uh, devices. So they completely refurbish them, they wipe them, they bring them back to an impressive standard and it gives people access to devices. So you could buy an iPhone 10, 11, 12 for several hundred euro cheaper than the iPhone 13. It gives you that technology. It gives you the device. Uh, it's better for the environment and better for your pocket. Is that something you're seeing in the UK as well? Um, I, I, I suppose I don't know very much about, about the size of, of that market, but certainly 
um, anecdotally, I, I know several people who are interested in switching to that or, or have already made that switch. Um, and I think as we end up with sort of more and more supply chain issues and shortages and, and the price of phones going up, um, that, that option is going to be more and more attractive in the years to come. You know, it might well be the case that five or 10 years from now, that's actually a, a fairly mainstream option. And buying something new is, is something that people do less and less of. Mm-hmm. And briefly, back to the Nothing phone, uh, you mentioned that you got to look at it earlier in the week. Uh, do you envisage a massive surge of people rushing towards it or do you think people might wait until the next iteration of it comes onto the market next year uh, when people have had a chance to see if it lives up to the hype? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think probably the, the tech enthusiasts will be keen to get their hands on it fairly soon. But as the kind of wider market, I'm not so sure. I mean, Nothing didn't run a kind of huge advertising campaign in the way that you know you might expect for the launch of an iPhone. So I'm not, I'm not sure how many people are aware of it, um, let alone want, want to buy it. Um, but I definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly certain they are already working on the next version. I mean, I spoke to someone at the launch uh, who worked there and had only been recruited about a week ago um, as, as one of the, as uh, joining their design team. So I reckon version two is already very much in the pipeline. All right, Simon Hunt, tech reporter with the Evening Standard. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Uh, When we come back, would you pay a monthly subscription for heated seats in your car? Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. Yeah, that is the theme tune for Stranger Things, which you'll find on Netflix and in the coming months, potentially alongside some ads. Uh, It was confirmed earlier this year that the streaming giant is going to bring ad breaks to make money. And just this week, the company confirmed that it's working with Microsoft on this project. We don't know all the details as of yet, but it's thought that they will offer a cheaper price plan for users and the trade-off will be a few ads, basically. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how it works and indeed the uptake. Would you sit through ads on Netflix for a cheaper price plan? You can email me at techtalk at newstalk.com or drop me a message on Twitter at jesskellynt. Now, speaking of subscription services, uh, BMW is making some features within its cars available for customers on a subscription model. From what I've seen so far, it has divided opinions, uh, to put it politely. But Geraldine Herbert is the motoring editor at the Sunday Independent. and She joins me now to discuss. Uh, Ger, just explain what this entails. Yes, so basically what BMW are doing is they offer a monthly subscription for some of their high-end features. So, for example, um, heated seats, you can get them for 15 euros a month. Um, Then you are sorry, for 20 euros a month, it's 200 for a year or 500 for unlimited features. Now, I I think the reason that people have viewed it um, in a bad light is it seems really cynical, I suppose, to offer subscription services for parts that are already on the car. But BMW argue that it offers people flexibility, like, for example, heated seats, you're not going to use them, Jess, in the summer. So, you know, you can dip in and out of these subscription services rather than having to pay the huge amount of money to have them fitted on your car permanently. So I, I think, you know, there's there's two sides to this, really. And you, I suppose initially that the view is, oh, my God, this is this is a rip off. But actually, I don't think it is. 
Yeah, I think I was a bit cynical when I first read about it. But the more I thought about it, I now see it as something that gives the consumer a greater choice and a bit more control when it comes to what they buy. But I have a bit of a stupid question, which I know wouldn't be like me. Um, How does it work? I mean, is it a case that the hardware is all there and then the software just kind of gets flicked on and off as needed? Yeah, that's what it seems to be. But I think, I suppose, you know, we're kind of moving towards this, you know, subscription economy and now it's been extended to cars. But I suppose there's a few things to consider here. Um, as I said, yeah, they, these features are already on the car, but they're actually really expensive. I don't think people realise how expensive options are if you pay up front. Just to give you an example, Jess, I had the BMW i4, their brand new electric car this week, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's a really well-equipped car. It was an M Sport trim. There was still nearly €12,000 worth of optional extras on it. So that, that's a lot of money. So if you can just pay for what you need. The other thing about extras are two things to consider is they tend to come in bundles when you're buying them up front. So you might only want two of the things that's been offered, maybe in a comfort pack of five things. And the other thing is it's very hard to get your money back when you sell the car if you've added a lot of extras. Now, some extras will add value to the car, but some won't. So I think from that point of view, it actually is quite a good idea for consumers to actually try out these options. Think, am I ever going to use them? Are they worth paying for? before you land out that you know that big money Mm, and say if I buy one of those BMW cars and don't want any of the add-ons at the time of purchase but then when say October November comes around and I'm freezing and I decide that heated seats would be most welcome can I subscribe retrospectively and, and enable it that way Yeah, you can dip in and out of it. And as I said, you can actually just pay for one month or with heated seats, you could pay for three months, the three coldest months of the year or whatever, and then have cool seats in the summer, though I don't think except for the today (laughs) and tomorrow, we're actually going to need those. But in a way, it is a good idea. Like, as I said, I viewed it quite cynically when it was first introduced. And I thought, God, but then I suppose when you think about it and when you look at actually, you know, you have to remind yourself, as I said, of the cost of these options when you're putting them permanently on your car. And then you start to think, you know what, it's not a bad idea to try something for a month and decide it's not something that's worth paying for because I wouldn't use it or it's something I couldn't live with. I could, you know, couldn't live without and I would pay for it. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for it. Does that make a better value for the secondhand market? So if I buy a car secondhand and it has none of the bells and whistles, I then decide I want to beef it up and essentially add value for myself. Could, could I do that? Yeah, exactly. I think so, because as a, you know, you're buying it at a reduced price then because the, the, the seller is not trying to recoup this investment on, you know, these very high end options. And as you say, you could buy it and maybe hold on to it for a few months and then add the uh, the options as, you know, maybe your, you know, your finances improved or whatever. So I think it might make these high end features more accessible to more buyers um, rather than it just being, a, you know, sort of a greedy exploitation, which I think is what, uh, what some people saw it as being. If the subscription model becomes a norm, does that mean in a few years time we'll only have basic cars out of the gate and that all the bells and whistles will have to be accessed on a subscription model? Or do you reckon that we'll always have the big add on packages like you mentioned there in that BMW? I think as long as cars are for sale and people buy and car ownership as we know it now continues, people will still opt to buy these things and have them installed on the cars because there's a certain mentality that doesn't like to pay for things monthly, even though the vast majority of the economy is moving towards the subscription mode. But what I would see ultimately, Jess, is that cars will be just, you know, you'll subscribe to BMW for the use of BMWs rather than ownership of a car. So instead of, you know, the heated seats in winter, you might get a four by four in winter and you might get a convertible in summer. 
it'll be that sort of an approach. So it'll, it'll extend this whole subscription model even further. And it'll actually, you know, be how we how we pick our cars rather than and how we own our cars or how used cars rather than how we own them. So I could see it extending much more beyond just options. When you look at the list of options for the subscriptions, are there any ones that are vital in your opinion or are they essentially like little sprinkles on top of a cupcake? Um, I don't know. I would have thought if you're buying, yeah, it always amazes me the things that that come as options. Like as I said, that BMW that I had this week at the starting, the listing price was sixty six thousand nine hundred and eighty. Now, if you're spending the guts of nearly seventy thousand on a car, I would have expected lots of bells and whistles. Anyway, the idea of then spending another twelve thousand euros on optional extras is, you know, is pretty jarring. I think. So, yeah, a lot of these things are, you know, like that car that I had, a heated steering wheel, electronic, uh, electric memory seats. These are seats when you sit into them, they remember your settings. These were all extras. You know, you kind of think to yourself, I would have thought they would be, you know, they would be standard at this stage when I'm spending that sort of money. Mm, but this is where I'm slightly concerned, though, because we're always hearing about new and brilliant technological developments within the world of motoring. But I'm wondering, where is the line and where will they draw the line between what comes as standard and then what's an added extra? Yeah, I think, though, the premium models, you know, the premium car um, makers, sort of BMW, Mercedes, Audi, have always been known for a very extensive and expensive options list. Whereas I suppose the Korean car makers, Hyundai and Kia, broke into the market and became hugely successful because they offered a huge amount of um, equipment and features as standard on their cars. And that was really their unique selling point. And that's how in the last decade they have become so successful. But the premium car makers have always had this model and they've always got away with it. So I suppose buyers, you know, they just expect that they only get a certain standard when they buy a car and that they will have to pay that extra. So I think it depends on the buyers and their expectations. And finally, for those who have no interest in subscriptions, is there a manufacturer that kind of nails it in terms of offering some of those nice little add-ons within the basic uh, model of a car? Yeah, as I said, uh, the Korean car makers, Hyundai and Kia, particularly Hyundai, and that's why I think they've the number one best-selling car in nearly every category at the moment. Um, they've become hugely successful for that because you get a lot for your money and you don't have, you know, this base price and then you go in and suddenly realise you have to pay extra for the steering wheel. You know, they, these things get thrown in, everything does, and they're really well-equipped cars. So yeah, it does make the difference. And that has been, you know, where a lot of um, their sales have come from is just that, that um, range that they offer people as standard. Geraldine Herbert, motoring editor at the Sunday Indo. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com, as ever, is the email address if you want to get in touch, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. And I don't think we could uh, have an episode of Tech Talk go by without talking about Elon Musk and Twitter and the will they, won't they. This is more dragged out and head wrecking than Ross and Rachel in Friends. Uh, Emmett Ryan of the Business Post is with me now to talk through what is going on. Um, Emmett, what's happening and why? So Twitter is suing Elon Musk because he's pulling out of his deal to take over the company. And of course, uh, for those who aren't aware, he announced this a couple of months ago now. It feels a lot longer because it's been dragging on so long. It was a $44 billion deal. And it was, of course, Elon Musk getting a wee joke in at $54.20 per share. And Twitter has said in its court filing that having mounted a public spectacle to put Twitter in play and have proposed and then signed a seller-friendly merger agreement, Musk apparently believes that he, unlike every other party subject to Delaware contract law, is free to change his mind, trash the company, disrupt his operations, destroy his stockholder value, and walk away. And my honest take on this is, yeah, they should have just let him. Mm. Uh, because, yes, they are absolutely factually correct in everything I said there, that Musk has 
flouted you know his position somewhat uh you know maybe not illegally just to be clear on that because i don't want to get tech talk or me in trouble mm-hmm. uh but uh you know he's definitely made sure he has uh you know made a lot of noise that has been an interruption to the business i wouldn't go as far as saying stockholder value has been destroyed actually that's a big question but trashing the company no question he's done that changed his mind well we can clearly see he's done that and he wants to walk away personally if i'm in life and elon musk presents an opportunity where Elon Musk will walk away. I ask no questions. I kiss the ground. I thank my lucky stars. I hug my loved ones. And I say nothing to anyone ever. Because yeah. not having Elon Musk in your life is better than having Elon Musk in your life. And Elon Musk just handed Twitter an end to this absolutely infuriatingly dull saga. And Twitter has decided to keep it going. Yeah, and there are a few different aspects to this that that I'd love to talk through with you because I know that you have like covered Musk and all of his different companies and iterations of his personality and all the rest over the years. And I'm intrigued as to why he has been so publicly reckless. I know there's an element of that that's just part of who and what he is. But this whole notion of carrying it out on Twitter, offering over the odds in terms of the price and then being a little whiny baby about it over, you know, the number of spam accounts and all the rest. It just doesn't seem very businessman-like. It doesn't, but it is very Musk-like. Like, I remember the day that we all found out, you know, he was he had put the bid in. I did a few radio slots for a few broadcasters, one of which the morning show got me. And the evening show lads who I knew got into, damn, what, the morning show already had you we were hoping to use you. And I said to them very simply, don't worry, you can use me when this deal falls apart. Because even back then, the likes of you, the likes of me, the likes of people who have far less experience than us as journalists, or as people just watching how all this happens, were saying, something's gonna happen to mess this up. They were probably using harsher language than that. And something happened. And a simple something was, Musk goes, eh, don't do it, which is an entirely Elon Musk thing. So. I'm not surprised that Elon Musk pulled out of trying to buy Twitter. I am a little surprised Twitter thinks it's a good idea to try and pursue him financially, purely because no matter what cash they get, even if it's an enormous sum, by the way, uh, you know, I look at this and I'm kind of going, it's going to be a fair victory because Elon Musk gets to play with them in open court, say whatever he like on the record, protected with privilege. You and I can report literally everything he says verbatim to our heart's content and however reckless he may seem on Twitter, he does have some some tiny, tiny level of restraint compared to what he would be allowed to do if he gets told you can say what you like and no one can touch you, which is what Elon Musk understand would be. That is something I never, ever, ever would want to have happen in my life. Mm. Uh, so what I've been trying to think about over the last little while, and I suppose like you, ever since this became a possibility, I was toying around with it in my head, almost like a Rubik's Cube, trying to get all the different sides to line up and all the rest. I still don't understand why he is, why he went after it in the first place. And also, the big question is, was it ever going to go through? Like, was this deal ever a reality or was it always just like a big cat and a little play thing and that's all it was well the attraction was certainly the cat and play thing because musk is obviously a very frequent user of the platform like he's had his off 
moments recently where he's like not not really used it to the same extent but like he's a twitter addict like you know mm. there's no getting around it he really loves to tweet so for him it's like well i used it so much but it doesn't make money and i'm really good at making money which is very factually true he is very good at making money um so i might as well see if i can make money with this but and shape it in my vision by doing things my way so i think he certainly wanted to buy it at one point i i have no doubt in my mind on that whether it was ever going to go through i'll be honest up until the point where the board accepted, because I thought the board was always going to succeed with its poison pill approach, I genuinely did. Mm. Uh, I, I thought, yeah, no, it's not going to hope. As soon as the board said yes, I figured, oh, crikey, there's a very good chance this actually happens. Uh, you know, I didn't think it was a huge chance, but like, you know, a lot more than the absolute nah, not a hope that I had. I was still betting against it going all the way through, but nowhere near the confidence I had yet. So certainly was plausible for a while at least. Okay, so what happens if the it, so we know that um that it, it you know there's suing going on, there's uh, tweets going on, there's all this stuff going on in the background, right? What happens if Musk is forced to continue with the deal and take over uh, Twitter? Like, can he say no point blank? And is it good or bad for the platform if he takes over at this date when he's already said he's no he no longer wants it because he doesn't have faith in the number it's of cer- users? It's certainly not good if he's forced to buy it, that's for sure. Forcing someone to buy something is possible, but generally not preferable. I'm quite confident Twitter's end game here is based around trying to get him on essentially the damage that uh, what they will argue was, you know, a, 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 a bid without true trust in it made to the business and hurt its overall value. And they will probably try and recover what they would perceive as the lost stockholder value. Like, I'm sure that's why they put it into their statement. And that's where the, that's what they're trying to pursue for. Like their, their ideal scenario is Musk doesn't get any extra stake in the business, but they get the money that they would have gotten in terms of what they see as destroyed stockholder value. Of course, this is Elon Musk. He might just go, if he's forced to buy it, okay, well, I guess I am buying it now. And that might be a lot worse for them. That's, again, why, you know, like it's very, very hard to force someone to go through a deal like this. It is possible. But like normal situations like this, it's a case of what compensation will we get or can we get? I'm sure Twitter are thinking about that. But again, we're, we're dealing with a not typical person. Like, well, what billionaire is, for starters. But even by billionaire standards, he's not typical in terms of his behavior, in terms of his actions. And he might very well, if he's forced to go through it, go, fine, I'm buying it then. And now you've got to deal with me. And I can't see how that would ever be good as an end game for Twitter as a business. No, certainly I, for anybody who's in a senior manager position. Yeah, and this is what I think sometimes is getting forgotten is that there are people who work for Twitter. There are plenty of people here in Ireland who work for Twitter. It is a business. There are human beings involved. And as much as a billionaire might want to use it as a plaything, that's not the right thing to do. And I also wonder, is this ordeal going to damage any future potential buyers of the company? So say if this just all disappears and Musk just disappears down a black hole, and that's the end of that. Like, Will anyone else realistically want to do it if Musk, the brilliant billionaire with the great brain who can make anything profitable, decides publicly that it's actually not worth his money? I think that there's two things to bear in mind here. One, certainly in terms of its value, there's going to be an issue. But in terms of stopping someone wanting to buy it, if anything, this is actually going to make it easier to find suitors because there'll be plenty of very rich people out there who would love to be able to show that I succeeded where Elon Musk failed. Like, you know, because people have egos at the end of the day, Jess, and being able to show that you managed to do the thing Elon Musk couldn't do, 
that's a pretty big thing to polish an ego with. You know, it's a nice thing to put in the mantelpiece and to tell your friends at parties. And so, yeah, I think they won't won't deter any future buyers. Just it'll deter the value for sure and what the Twitter might get for the actual business. I think I certainly think like right now, like that forty four billion dollar level number, nothing near it in terms of what a what a buyer might go for. Um, you know, even allowing for that having been over the odds, because just I look at it kind of go, yeah, uh, you know, it's like it's just not quite where it needs to be, mm-hmm. like and. You know, Twitter could well recover. Like its market cap is currently, by the way, only twenty-seven point seven billion dollars. So that's a lot. Like I say, only obviously it's a huge amount of money, but it's a whole huge amount of money less than what it was. So looking at it that way, and I kind of go, yeah, like it's there to be bought for a much cheaper price, and a lot of rich people will probably kind of go, and that could be an intriguing, much cheaper price. Mm. I've been um, looking at some of the the different uh, plans, or the you know, there's all these think pieces online, and everybody has an opinion on what Twitter could or should do to try and turn the ship around and make it a, a very successful company, regardless of Elon Musk, and try and maybe reform the reputation that it's had for quite a while uh, in terms of the bot accounts and the trolling and all the rest. Do you see anything dramatic changing? with or without Musk in terms of the platform itself? You know, can it, does it, firstly, does it need to redeem itself? And secondly, can it be done? It, it, it's in the process of redemption, I think, in fairness. Like, there is processes there. Also, I think this the digital service that is coming from the EU will sort of force it to be smarter about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I don't think Elon Musk is required in or out in that respect in order to ensure it behaves better. As in, even if he was in, I think it would have to behave better. Whether he would like that or not is another matter entirely, obviously. But I think it's going to behave better with or without Elon Musk. I think... The work that's required, like, you know, obviously don't wrong, there's a lot of bad stuff on Twitter, but the actual work involved isn't that difficult, I think. Like, you know, it involves an awful lot of effort, sure, but the actual execution is fairly straightforward in my book in terms of making sure Twitter gets that bit cleaner, bit safer, and frankly, as a result, more appealing to advertisers, which is kind of important for Twitter because it wants to make money. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so bottom line, are we still, I feel like this is the new, uh, you know, Groundhog Day subject. How much longer are we going to be talking about this for? Far longer than I wanted, Jess, because <laughs> if, if if Brett Taylor, you know, he's like one of the top guys in Salesforce, he's the chair of Twitter. If he had uh, swallowed it and said, yep, we dodged it and walked away, uh, it'd be fine. But Brett Taylor, unfortunately, is acting like a chairman of a board is supposed to act rather than, you know, should act in this case, which is a very subtle difference. The chairman of the board should is, is supposed to act in the best commercial interests of the business and all that and to protect it. That's great. All I'm saying is if this was Parag Agraval as CEO's decision rather than a board decision, I think Parag would go, yeah, lads, we dodged us. Let's just go have a coffee and uh, not worry about it anymore. Uh, I think Brett, uh, you know, is probably thinking, i got to protect shareholders. i got to show responsibility and all that. But uh, And I respect him for it, just to be clear. But, oh, man, I really wish he hadn't. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Uh, no doubt we will have every twist and turn of this saga as it continues. Uh, Emmett Ryan of The Business Post, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks for having me, Jess. When we come back here on News Talk, we'll hear all about the upcoming Dublin Maker Festival. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware.
Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, we're constantly hearing about new med tech devices that have been developed to make the lives of patients that bit better, giving them insight into what's happening with their bodies and how they can control it. But this week, News Talk's Henry McKean got his hands on a med tech device that looks to give people a better understanding of what women go through when they reach the menopause. It's called the MenoVest uh, and it's made by a company called Over the Bloody Moon. And it simulates hot flushes. Here is how Henry got on wearing it overnight. So it's midnight. I'm in bed. I'm wearing this meno vest. It is getting quite warm. It's actually heating up. You know, it's past my bedtime. The idea is to stay up a bit later. And also drink lots of water. So I wake up in the night and, you know, experience what it's like to have menopause. And to get some of those feelings. And yeah, it's really heating up right now. I've set my alarm for three o'clock and for five o'clock in the morning uh, to get up. And uh, as you would do if you were really, really hot, if you had the night sweats. Oh, I'm definitely going to have the night sweats. So um, it's now just after 3 a.m. I set my alarm. um, I couldn't really move. And the idea is to basically wake now. Uh, and change um, change your sheets and change your t-shirt, especially if your t-shirt's wet. So my t-shirt is wet, so I'm going to uh, change that. Oh, very difficult waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I finally actually just managed to basically get it together. It's now about 20 past 3. So the alarm went off at 5am, and at 5 I have to open the window. Waking up at this time is not very nice. So good morning, it's now after seven o'clock. Not a great night's sleep to be honest, actually waking up and opening the window. That was perhaps the biggest challenge. I'm feeling pretty warm, but the cold air really helped. Now the advice is as part of this meno vest challenge in this special hot flush suit is to take it off and actually have a freezing cold shower. Also, don't have any coffee and skip breakfast. And that way, uh, supposedly uh, it will uh, affect me. Okay, let's have this uh, cold shower. That is refreshing. That is cold. Yeah, that was poor Henry. Uh, talking through his experience of wearing the Meno vest, I don't think he enjoyed it, to be completely honest with you. Uh, but I think it was an eye-opening experience. Leslie Salem of Over the Bloody Moon explained where the idea for this Meno vest came from and how she came to make it happen. I wanted to come up with an idea, um, a way of engaging men into the conversation and to develop allyship. So I commissioned a textile innovation company called Thread Design and the R&D was funded by um, Theramex, who are a a women's health pharmaceutical company. And really, thanks, thanks to those two parties, we managed to get an idea into reality. The idea is is it normalises the conversation. Um, Not everybody will want to kind of, you know, talk or share their experiences. But for those that do, um, it it allows that conversation. And also it allows um, men to come forward and share their experiences um, or or women of what it's like living with a partner who's going through menopause because it affects everybody around us. So it's a tool really to get everybody to share their experiences. And we know through communication, Um, people can get the right support and then suddenly you know all the stress that is actually a trigger of these symptoms reduces um, and helps alleviate um, and manage menopause much better. 
That was Leslie Sainham of Over the Bloody Moon on the back of Henry's menopause experiment. If you want to listen back to that report in full, you can do so on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Now, next Saturday, the Dublin Maker Festival takes place in the city's Marion Square. Geoffrey Rowe is one of the team members behind it and he joins me now. Uh, Geoffrey, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. What is the Dublin Maker Festival? So it's a one-day showcase of where we bring together all the great makers from across Ireland to come take over Marion Square and really showcase to the public the passion, enthusiasm, skills that all these great makers have. What, what type of makers come along? Because we know that... Ireland as a whole has incredible uh, creative brains working in whether it's textile, textiles, arts, technology, creative technology. You know, we have all these kind of brilliant brains. So what kind of talent is, is on display? Oh, so we have a, a great eclectic mix, a little bit of something for everybody to enjoy. For example, we have uh, AI powered uh, race carts uh, racing each other around the track. We have a cardboard arcade. We have a traditional iron jumper uh, uh, knitting. It's a real kind of mix to kind of showcase the different skills from crafts to high technology to bleeding edge research coming out of UCD using jellyfish. We have a little something for everybody. And where did the idea come from and how do you curate who gets to come along? So this is uh, going to be our, our, our 10th year uh, uh, running the festival. It's grown from its small origins uh, on the lawns of uh, Trinity College to now taking over uh, Marion Square. And it came about as these people, these makers, don't really have a, an event to showcase their talents and their skills anywhere. They don't really fit into the traditional craft fairs or trade shows. And we wanted to create something uh, for them to kind of showcase their talent to the general public and for the public to realise, oh, I can take up that skill. I can uh, try and achieve that project or I can get into making. You said it's the 10th year. So how long do you, how long is the, the vetting process and the selection process to pick and choose those projects? Some of the ones that you've, you've mentioned this year sound fantastic. Yeah, so uh, just around Paddy's Day each year, uh, we, have, uh, we have an open call and we get about... Uh, 80% uh, of our exhibitors uh, from that open call. And uh, unfortunately, we can't accept everybody. But the other 20%, we actually go around the country because a lot of these makers, they're, they're in their back garden shed, they're making on their kitchen table, and they don't realize that they can come and showcase to the public, take part in uh, in science outreach. So we go out into the around the country looking for these makers giving them the encouragement, their needs, the little bit of training uh, to be ready to showcase their project to the public. On the day itself, so we mentioned this is taking place in Marion Square next weekend. So on the day itself, what kind of people go along and what do people do? Do they interact with the projects? Do they talk to the makers? What is the experience as an attendee? So it's a, it's a family friendly event. We have a mixture of uh, exhibits that you interact with, workshops. So, for example, we have uh, Creative Spark from Dundalk coming down uh, showcasing screen printing. We have uh, a group from TU Dublin doing uh, an apocalyptic style uh, exhibit where people can take part in different uh, workshops as to how we might rebuild society. We have all these kind of interactive 
uh, elements and for stuff for people just to observe, have a look at. We have plenty of uh, artwork created by our different makers. But one of the key things that we're doing this year that maybe some of your listeners who have lots of uh, technology and stuff at home is we're hosting a repair cafe. So we're encouraging people to also bring along any broken items they have at home that they might have lying in that drawer or at, the, or at the bottom of a wardrobe to come along and we'll try and fix them at the repair cafe at the event. Oh, that's amazing. So is that, you know, a smartphone, a laptop, anything in between? It's anything in between. It's uh, a button that fell off your favourite jumper. It's uh, that kid's toy that you've been hanging on since your childhood that might need a few extra stitches. It's that uh, blender that you used to love making your smoothies with in the morning that doesn't quite turn anymore. And we'll have a definite go at fixing it. Amazing. It sounds like a very feel-good event. And it is... It's like a, a, an arts and crafts fair, but for all kinds of talent. You must really enjoy, you know, that process of identifying the, the people to take part and seeing it come to life on the day itself. Oh, it's great. You talk to these people. They're extremely passionate and skilled about what they do and, and what they make. And they're just looking for that opportunity, that chance to showcase and share that passion with the visitors that come along. Like we get people every year, <coughs> excuse me, who come along and then get you know, filled up with enthusiasm and then they'll be taking a stand next year after being inspired by what they see. And for the makers, you mentioned there that some of these makers are very established. Other people are at their kitchen table and maybe not don't realise how great they are. What comes of the makers? Is it just that uh, chance to exhibit and showcase what they do? Is there any business aspirations? Is there collaboration aspirations? What way does it work from that from that end? So we're very conscious about... A lot of our makers, it starts off a, 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 as a hobby. They're very interested in taking it further as a small business or building. So what we've done this year, uh, something different for our 10th event is we're after teaming up with Dublin City Council uh, Leo. So that's a local enterprise uh, office. And we're offering kind of true Leo supports and services for these makers to turn their hobby into their side business or, their, uh, or something to do in a weekend and hopefully maybe take over as being their full-time job. So what we're after doing is we're going to have uh, five clients from Leo who are a bit further along in their uh, kind of in their journey to be uh, self-sufficient or to have, a, have their making uh, turn into their job and really have that there to showcase to the public and also other makers that maybe, yeah, with a bit of support from Leo, a few of the courses uh, that Leo run, that maybe they can take their hobby and turn it into a successful business. God, that's great. And it's such a nice uh, organic journey as well. You know, turning a hobby into a job or turning a passion project into a job, I think is is just sensational. Um, I was looking at the website as well, uh, and that's the place that people can go if they want more information because there is plenty there. You can also see highlights from previous years. It's dublinmaker.ie. Um, and I note that you have some great sponsors and, and companies and organisations backing you and, and making this possible. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't be possible without uh, our, you know, our, our sponsors and supporters, people like Science Foundation Ireland, who are very uh, interested in, in promoting STEM and te- uh, as a career choice and making us the most scientific, literate uh, you know, society in Ireland. Uh, as I said, we have great support from Leo and Dublin City Council, the ESB. And then we've kind of got the smaller companies who also get involved, who uh, just like to see the event happen. So like uh, ORS Ireland, who 
uh, sell lots of kind of uh, electronics and supplies to, to makers and to uh, the electronic industries. We have local marketing companies and stuff like Vimbar Marketing to really kind of bring together and allow us to run the event for free. We want people to be able to walk around, enjoy themselves and really create that kind of festival atmosphere. And you mentioned that, that this is a family event and it is free. So anyone who is knocking around, if you're looking for something to do, you can drop by and just waddle in. You don't necessarily have to have an agenda or have to have a full menu of what you want to see. It is just an environment to walk around and absorb, right? Yeah, come along on the on the 23rd of July, you know, grab yourself a nice cup of coffee at the event, wander around, chat to the people and you'll you know leave the event being very inspired brilliant stuff well i'm definitely going to be there and i cannot wait uh, it sounds fantastic as i mentioned the full details are up on dublinmaker.ie uh, jeffrey Rowe, thank you so much for joining us here on news talk thank you and that's it for this week if you missed any of the show you can listen back on the news talk app powered by go loud i'll be back with shane and kira on monday's news talk breakfast but in the meantime enjoy the rest of your weekend